electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and put crazy days like today into context. So call me, 1-800-743-CBC, or tweet me at Jim Kramer. This morning, we witnessed the second largest bank failure in American history, which naturally created a wave of fear as the day went on. Hence, the Dow ultimately losing 345 points, S&P falling 1.45 percent, and the Nasdaq tumbling 1.76 percent. The fear actually makes sense. I listened to some of the smartest people all day, and I concluded that nobody, not even the Fed, knows what happens when the most important bank in Silicon Valley gets seized by the FTA. DIC, as was what happened today. Yeah, we left here with no real idea. Will there be contagion? Could this be an outlier? We just don't know. At first blush, there was some strength to the market with the weakness contained to the banks and tax, as in which banks the next to fall and which tech stocks going to get hurt because it has money there, which startups will be crushed. I mean, hey, look, we just found out this evening that Roku had 26% of its considerable $1.9 billion cash worth with this company. And we know there's never just one cockroach in a bank's kitchen. Who knows? Maybe there are companies that trade now or are going to come public that are just plain done. Stick a fork in them. So by the end of the day, we got a nasty sell-off in anything that needs a strong economy. Banks, tax, signals. Because who knows where all that money is? And maybe a recession could be caused by this bank. Yeah, their failure. What other companies kept their money in the bank? It's all unknown. But why don't we do this? Why don't we do something that's not rash, but rational? Let's step back for one moment. There's one key way in which this bank failure could actually be good news for all of your stocks. And I didn't hear many people offer this view today. Sure, any institution remotely connected to SVB, depositors, borrowers, venture capitalists, is going to be hurt and hurt big time. There's going to be some major losses. But you know what? Even with those losses, I do not see this as a systemic problem. I actually see it as a cool hand Luke problem, as in what we got here is a failure to communicate. 
SVB downplayed it was getting killed on its bond portfolio each time the Fed raised interest rates. The bank didn't signal that it had too many bad uh, loans. Uh, they were backed up in stock uh, in startups that haven't been able to come public because there's no appetite for IPOs when the Fed's tightened aggressively. It should have been raising money like crazy for months, like some of the other banks out there. Instead, it seemed frozen during the headlights, seemingly just pretending that things were okay. Which brings me to the key question. Can the Fed really keep tightening like crazy before they know how bad the contagion might be from SVB's demise? I don't think that'd be prudent. Can the Fed really raise interest rates dramatically? But it doesn't know what could happen now that they've blown a hole in the most vibrant and viable part of the U.S. economy, tech? I don't think so. Of course, there's nothing wrong with the market's negative reaction the last couple of days. Bank failures are bad, especially when we have no idea how extensive the collateral damage will be. Don't want to sugarcoat that. But the Fed's been fighting against inflation, and there's nothing more deflationary than the collapse of a highly indebted bank. Nothing. It would be reckless for them to keep tightening aggressively now that banks are going under. Jay Powell wants to hit the brakes on the economy, but he doesn't want to cause an 18-car pileup. And look, even though the market was right to sell off, it was wrong for everything to get hit. The defensive recession-proof stocks should have been bought in today's weakness, not sold if you really think a recession's upon us. The cyclical smokestack stocks might not need to have been sacrificed in the order of price stability. What's bad today actually may be good once everything is sorted out, although it won't be sorted out this weekend. I do want you to stay the course. We bought very small for the Travel Trust today. We're probably going to be buying big on Monday. When we come in, though, I think we'll learn that the fallout from SVB can derail a huge chunk of the growth economy. Those guys were in businesses with so many venture capitalists and big tech firms, but it will also stay the Fed's hand, which helps so many other stocks. At the very least, I doubt we'll get more than one more 25 basis point rate hike. Well, if we knew that going into today, we'd be so happy because the Fed doesn't want banks failing due to their own failure to communicate. I think SVB is pretty similar to what happened to Penn Square roughly 40 years ago. This was a reckless bank that made a ton of loans against then the red-hot commodity of oil. And then oil collapsed and it took Penn Square with it. That bank failure had huge repercussions for the entire financial system as it took down another storied bank, Continental Illinois. That was a monumental failure. This time, I don't think the Fed wants to allow something like that to happen. And the easiest way to prevent it is by slowing the pace of the rate hikes. I think Powell, a banker of my vintage, remembers Penn Square as oil then was like tech now. He doesn't want to repeat that error. It was terrible. And let's not forget, this morning we got a weaker non-farm payroll report, especially on the wage line. That number alone might have kept the Fed from giving us a double rate hike at this month's meeting. So to make it clear, the collapse of SVB has huge ramifications beyond the tech world. But I actually think the biggest impact is it'll be able it'll be the thing that keeps the Fed from wrecking the entire economy because the most overheated part of this economy has already been frozen. It's short term bad, but longer term, I will tell you, very, very good unless you live and work in the blast zone or you bank at Silicon Valley Bank. With that in mind, let's go over our game plan for next week, even though I've made this whole argument about how the SVB failure will make the Fed back off. You know, maybe something that we're not not thinking enough about, the CPI could hurt us. But if we get a weak number, a weak reading, if the CPI's number is at all cool, 
You'll hear people wondering if the Fed will even raise rates at all when the Open Market Committee meets on March 21st. So that's the most important macro number of the week. I also want to listen to Lenar, the conference, their conference call. Now, by the way, these are some of the most thoughtful people in all of the industry, of, of all industry, not just home builders. And they'll let us know if there's any break whatsoever in housing prices. See, the Fed's been really frustrated by the seeming inability of home prices to come down. And it got more bad news today when bond yields went down in reaction to the SUB collapse. Of course, that means mortgage rates are going to fall. So Lenar might be actually bullish for the housing business, but not so good for the Fed. Score one for the macro bears, even as the micro bulls will keep making money in the stock. Wednesday's important action comes from Adobe. This is a company that's trying to make a deal that could keep its creative cloud offering competitive with an outfit called Canva. The regulators have been fighting the merger, though. At the same time, Adobe could soon be challenged by artificial intelligence, notably that chat GPT we all talk about, which has the potential to be real bad for copywriters who are core users of Adobe's product. I'm more, less sanguine about the stock than I used to be. But we also hear from a company I still like very much, and that's called Five Below. The, this is fun, inexpensive retail. The kids love it, in part because of the low price points. By the way, it tends to trade with Ulta, which had a terrific quarter yesterday. That's another super growth retailer. More on them later. Hey, speaking of super growth, Dollar General reports on Thursday. And now this is a favorite of Wall Street, which seems to be transfixed on the trade down. That means that you're definitely trading down if you go to a Dollar General. A strong number shows a cash-strapped consumer, which means another arrow in the 25 basis point rate hike quiver. After the close, we hear from FedEx. Now, until today, the stock was just unstoppable, but now it got stopped in its tracks. And some investors pulled out of the cyclicals, betting that Jay Powell would keep tightening no matter what. I find that unbelievable now that Silicon Valley banks going under. It can't tighten and, and not tighten at the same day. Finally, on Friday, we get a slew of manufacturing data that might not reflect the post-Silicon Valley Bank world, which is a very different world from the pre-Silicon Valley Bank world. So if these numbers are hot, they may not matter after what happened today. On the other hand, maybe Jay Powell will say, man, this economy is still red hot, despite the SVB going under situation. Bottom line, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, it's just one more double-edged sword in a market that's just full of them. Russell in New York. Russell. Hey, Jim, how are you? Many thanks for everything. I'm okay, Russell. How are you? Good. A quick one. Um, Expedia, I'd like to know if this is a good time to get into that stock, or should I hold up a while? I have to tell you, I genuinely believe that if you want travel right now, I like Airbnb as a way to be able to go around the world very inexpensively. Let's go to Mark in California. Mark. Hey, Jim. I have a technical question about a stock that both of you, both of us love. Um, it's Orteos. They came out with an offering of 8 million shares of their Class A common stock, and they offered it at a price of $21.05, which is great. However, um, my question is, they said that it's not going to be dilutive to current shareholders. How is that possible? Well, that stock already existed. It just wasn't free to trade. But what does bother me, I got to tell you, is that the timing of that, why didn't they held off? The market just got real bad. It would have been a much better time to wait to be able to get rid of that, to be able to offload that stock in what was called a synthetic secondary transaction. Very hard for everyone to understand. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is just one more double-edged sword in a market that's full of them. 
Well, Man Money tonight, Clean Harbors is in the business of cleaning up a host of emergency spills. So does the company have what it takes to clean up your portfolio in the face of volatility? Don't miss my exclusive with the CEO. Then I just mentioned Alter reported what I consider an excellent quarter, but Wall Street didn't agree with me until the end of the day. I'm digging into the stock's crazy action give you my take. And with fears surrounding the bank's commercial real estate, how could that impact a company like Reality Income, letter O? I'm learning more about the story with the company's top brands. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. After a messy day for the market, let's talk about something clean. Kramer Fave Clean Harbors, the largest hazardous waste disposal firm in North America with a huge industrial cleaning and maintenance business. In addition to certain corporate clients and environmentally unfriendly industries, Clean Harbors is also the ghostbuster of environmental service. Every time there's a major spell, who are you going to call? Clean Harbors. That includes the cleanup of Ground Zero after September 11th, a ton of COVID decontamination efforts, and uh, most recently, even the horrific train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, although that's mainly a federal government-led effort. If it sounds like I'm waxing nostalgic about clean harbors, I guess you could say I am, and it's for good reason. At the end of the month, a new year begins for this company, as Alan McKim, the founder, chairman, and CEO, passes on the reins to a pair of successors, taking on a new role as the company's executive chairman and chief technology officer. He also just came up with a great book on his career, uh, founding this company, by the way, with next to nothing and turning into a $7 billion business. So before he steps down, let's check in, check in with Alan McKim. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Clean Harbors for kind of a, let's call it an exit interview. Mr. McKim, welcome back to Man Money. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. 
So, Alan, look, I got to tell you, you've been, done a terrific job. And I want to know uh, why now and why take on the title of executive chairman as well as chief technology officer? Okay, well, you know, we've had a great team. We've been working together for a, a long time as a team, and I really kind of wanted to keep that team together and realize that, you now we've hit $5 billion in revenue and a billion dollars of EBITDA and really delivered great safety results. So we've really hit some milestones, and I've been working with the board on succession planning, and we really wanted to move forward with the new management team to kind of take the business to $10 billion and beyond. And uh, I think this is going to be a terrific opportunity for us to do that. And I've spent a tremendous amount of my time on helping the, develop the technology and the systems that have supported the, the revenue growth that we've had. And I want to continue to, to help in that way anywhere I can and, and help on strategy with acquisition. So I want to support that team, but it's really time to let the, uh, Mike and Eric uh, take over and run the business moving forward. All right, Bill. In your terrific book, you spend a lot of time talking about leadership and getting your team up, really up to where they have to be. But you spend a lot of time on 9-11, on Deepwater Horizon, and on hurricanes and more. And I thought maybe you could just tell our viewers which are the most difficult ones, which are the most memorable ones, and which are the ones that you kind of felt were only clean harbors could do. Well, certainly some of the work that we've done most recently with COVID, over 22,000 responses to help our customers deal with the COVID uh, outbreak, um, dealing with the, the bird flu back in 2015. 9-11 uh, certainly was a, a major undertaking to help uh, the first responders there. And so I think uh, the whole idea of really recognizing our employees uh, that are out there doing the doing every day was really part of the book. And and I think it really is what makes Clean Harbor so unique as being the, the premier emergency response company. Right. Okay, so the doing, what, doing the doing, which you say in the first, first couple pages, which is just really gripping about, uh, about really being hacked yourself. But when you're doing the doing on something like, say, PFAS, which is groundwater, this one has stumped everyone. And yet you feel that there's some way that you can actually help, say, 3M clean up a PFAS situation? Absolutely. I think both whether it's on-site handling groundwater contamination or it's to be able to safely remove contaminated soils and debris that need to be treated, you know, we have shown that we have done the studies that we can handle that. Uh, we can perform at the, the levels of uh, clean that are going to be needed. We certainly need the government to have better regulations around what standard they want to use for PFAS cleanup. But I think in the long run, that is going to be an opportunity where we can really help our customers deal with that. All right, that's very good to know because that's that is really crushed 3M stock PFAS. All right, so next door to me, I've got the Guanas Canal, and I was hoping that you would come down and clean it up. And then out of nowhere, they announced it as a Superfund site. Uh, I honestly believe I wanted to ask you that if clean harbors have been in in many different cases, like the Guanas Canal, and it wasn't a Superfund Superfund site, it was run by business. Wouldn't there be a lot more cleaner uh, rivers, cleaner groundwater, cleaner sites all over the country? Does it get in the way? Does, does a designation of Superfund site get in the way of your work? Um, I would say that they're part of what we do uh, for companies that don't take care of those uh, issues or they're issues that go back 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, the government recently reauthorized and put more money behind Superfund, so we actually think we're going to start seeing more movement. We studied them to death. Let's go and do the doing. Let's go out and clean them up. 
And um, but I think when you look at today's uh, industry that produces hazardous waste, very responsible, the right technology is available and we can handle that disposal day in and day out. But those Superfund sites are, are really remnants of the past that I think are finally going to start getting cleaned up. Well, I sure hope so, because I know that when you're called in, it happens quickly. When the government's called in, it does seem to drag. Well, anyway, Alan, we will miss you. Alan is the founder and outgoing chairman and CEO of Clean Harbors with a very good book about leadership and also, I would say, how to take on the toughest situations our country has faced. Man Bunny's back after the break. Coming up, a fine foundation for retail? Kramer breaks down Ulta's rosy earnings report next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We need to talk about Ulta Beauty, the largest pure play cosmetics retailer in America, which reported what I thought was an excellent, excellent quarter just last night. Yet the stock had a bizarre reaction, initially spiking to 530 in after hours trading for plunging down below 500 and then recovering back to 510 where it went out after hours trading closed at 8 p.m. last night. Today, though, it rebounded from those levels, opening up slightly, bouncing around like crazy, then finishing the day at 521. That's up slightly from yesterday's close. I mean, this is just some sort of roller coaster yo-yo. I don't know what to say. We've got to ask what the heck happened here. How does a great company report a strong quarter only to see its stock go up and down and up and down and then only go nowhere? What's going on? First, make no mistake. The actual results, they were terrific. There's a reason Ulta Beauty is a longtime time of fame. They delivered a massive earnings beat, making $6.68 per share. Wall Street was only looking for $5.70. Sales came in much better than expected, up 18% year-over-year. Their same-store sales, the key metric, were up 15.6. Street was looking for 8.7. As it was double. And that number's all the more impressive when you consider that Ulta was up against some insanely tough comparisons last year. <laughs> last year, they had 21.4% same-store sales growth. So that's an extraordinary what we call stock. 
absolutely nothing wrong with the headline numbers at all. Uh, what, what about the guidance? Again, all pretty good. Ulta's full-year net sales, same-store sales, and earnings forecast came in comfortably ahead of expectations. Their margins guidance was basically in line. They're only talking about opening 25 to 30 new stores. Okay, that was a little light. And also expecting 49 new stores. But the company also plans to remodel or relocate another 20 or 30 stores, 10 to 20 more than Wall Street was looking for. They moved some of their new store budget to the remodeling budget. Not much to quibble with. So why did the stock get clobbered in after hours trading? Well, first, some of this is that great expectations problem I often talk about. Going into last night's close, Ulta was up 11% year-to-date. Remember, the market's gotten real bad, and nearly 40% over the previous 12 months. In other words, the stock came in sizzling. It was also selling at 21.5 times this year's earnings estimates, which is pretty high for a retailing environment. Most of them are about half of that these days. When the expectations are high, the market tends to be very unforgiving if things aren't perfect. Second, while Ulta's guidance was technically ahead of the analyst's consensus estimates, it's very possible that it was still considered disappointing versus what's known as the whisper, the numbers that the bulls were really hoping for. Last year, the company had 15% same-store sales growth. This year, they're calling for 4 to 5% same-store sales growth. Now, that is a major deceleration, even as it didn't come as a surprise to the analysts. Now, I did flag that I was disappointed myself. And, you know, I think this company's great. Let's walk in the street this morning. I actually thought they were just being conservative. Third, obviously, Ulta happened to report in a bad moment for the market. I mean, we spent all day worrying about bank runs and a newly aggressive Federal Reserve. Of course, people are going to get more cautious, especially with a growth stock like Ulta, which is subject to downdrafts caused by inflation, not to mention sell-offs spurred by the entire market, given that it's more expensive than the average stock. That's just what happens. Beyond that, though, there were some other areas that you could nitpick, like the new store guidance. But the worst aspect of the call, you got to learn this. I need to teach you. When management used the term investors didn't want to hear, and that term was D-D-E, leverage. One word, deleverage. We're not talking about debt here. We're talking about operating leverage. See, when a company has operating leverage, each additional dollar of sales has higher margins than the last. Deleverage is the exact opposite, and that's what Ulta told us to expect. And I didn't want to hear that myself. Specifically, they said gross margin will deleverage modestly as the company annualizes the benefits from last year's price changes and heads into a more promotional environment this year. Their operating margins projected to take a real hit, too, and that I didn't like. That's thanks to higher sales, general administrative expenses, ongoing wage pressures, some supply chain constraints. Not great. That's the bad news. Ultimately, though, once we listened to the entire conference call, the positives, I thought, very much outweighed the negatives. Remember, the actual quarterly results were indeed fantastic. I started, to, started this piece by telling you that. Ulta saw double-digit same-store sales growth in every major category. Strongest growth came from skincare, very lucrative business. Fragrance and bath had double-digit growth on top of a double-digit growth quarter the year before. The makeup category actually accelerated from the previous quarter. Ulta also pointed out they're taking market share in the prestige beauty business, meaning they're prying away high-end business from big department stores, fancy cosmetics chains. I also thought management told us a great story about their strategic priorities. They talked about broadening their product assortment. They have 25,000 products currently available, more on the way. They talked about expanding their omnichannel offering, especially by online pickup and store, the Bopus. Ulta says 31% of its digital orders were fulfilled by the stores last year, up from 28% in 2021. Works for Walmart, works for them. They mentioned the rewards program now has a staggering 40.2 million members. 
40.2. Wow. Plus, managers sounded pretty darn bullish about 2023. CEO Dave Kimball said that he's, quote, optimistic about the company's opportunities to expand market leadership and drive profitable growth, end quote. He also made it clear that the beauty category remains incredibly durable. When you think about what happened with Silicon Valley, well, I like this, quote, consumer engagement with beauty is stronger than ever and is more connected with wellness. These factors give us confidence that the growth of the U.S. beauty category will remain healthy, but moderate to the higher end of the category's historical annual growth rate, end quote. Pretty good. Not perfect. On top of that, I think all the talk of margin erosion this year might have overshadowed some more positive long-term commentary from CFO Scott Satterston, who said, well, he gave you some encouraging forecasts for next year. So what's, what do we do with this one? It shouldn't be that hard. You need to understand, even before the quarter, the stock had become a real battleground, battleground on Wall Street. For months, it had been hit with a series of downgrades. Sell, sell, sell. At price target cuts, sell, sell, sell. Goldman came out with a piece in December taking the stock from a buy to neutral, arguing that it's likely to see less meaningful market share growth. Plus, it'll also be up against those real tough comparisons I talked about. Uh, by the way, in early January, Wells Fargo took Ulta from an equal weight to an underweight, meaning an outright sell. sell, sell. sell. Uh, they, they noted that there's no really any great catalyst up ahead. And they also said that that could be a pretty negative setup for the first quarter. Of course, even if some analysts went negative, there were still plenty of bulls on this one. And that's what makes it a battleground. My view, this is an incredibly well-run company. Ulta's been thriving for years. That affinity group of 40 million people is hard to beat. It's most of any specialty retailer. I'm not ready to give up on this one because I believe in the concept and I believe in management, which is terrific. That said, if the stock ends up selling off along with the rest of the market in the near future, I'd love that. I would buy it. My only real problem with Ulta is that it hasn't pulled back enough in a very tough market. Bottom line, Ulta got pulverized in after hours trading last night because the expectations were very high and there was some hair on the quarter. But in the end, the market revisited this one today and came to the right conclusion, which is how the stock only ended up slightly higher despite a hideous tape. What an affirmation that I'm right. This one is terrific. I hope you get another bite of the apple because I think that Ulta is a great Barry in North Carolina, Barry. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Calling asking about Real Blunt. Good. Do, you, do you think it's going to put the big bills in the bag or is it going to sink? Barry, I think Block is terrific. Um, they don't have nearly as much risk as a lot of banks. They are the young person's bank, but it is an expensive stock and we don't need to do anything, anything in that finance state. Uh, well, if you join the club, you will see there's only two banks of financials that I want to own right now. The only two I really feel confident about other than J.P. Morgan. Dave in Illinois. Dave. Dr. Kramer, my mad Central American deep sea fishing friend, how are you? (laughs) I'm a big tuna eater, Dave. Good to hear you. Me too. Jim, analysts at Credit Suisse and Morgan Stanley recently maintained their overweight and outperform ratings on this $48 billion sports car manufacturer. Last month, Ferrari reported record quarterly results and strong demand going forward. Not cheap at 40 times forward earnings, but practically recession-proof, I'd say. Even Lamborghini-loving Lisa, I think, could appreciate so, Jim, is this stock investable or am I just waiting for a good dough? 
Oh, no, Dave, this is very investable. And yes, indeed, Lisa, my wife, loved driving Lamborghini. The highest of the high, LVMH, Ferrari, they are still winning. Okay, Ulta got pulverized in after-hours trading last night, but that was a mistake. In the end, the market revisited. And when you see a stock that's up on a day like today, that's one you want to own. Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with realty income, letter O. Could the monthly dividend company continue to live up to its title? I'm um, getting the latest from the CEO. Then we haven't really seen the effects of the Fed's tightening on individual companies. But after today's collapse Silicon Valley Bank, what should the Fed do next? I'm going to give you my take, and I hope Jay Powell's listening. And of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. What do we do with the best-run commercial real estate companies at a time when Wall Street suddenly feel very, very worried about the commercial real estate business? Take Realty Income. Yeah, letter O. A REIT that owns more than 12,200 commercial properties. You know I've been a big fan of this one because of its generous dividend policy. Realty Income calls itself the monthly dividend company because they give you a payout every month. And they've raised that payout 119 times since coming public 29 years ago. These levels, it works out to a bountiful 5% yield. Seems like a lot safer than the other 5% yields I see. I love that dividend. But we need to be very careful with REITs right now because urban office real estate appears to be falling apart in some areas. So we need to make sure we know what these guys own. That's why earlier today, when we spoke to Sumit Roy, the president and CEO of Realty Income, to find out, he gave us the skinny. Take a look. Mr. Roy, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me back. All right. So we've got this big craziness going on today with the Silicon Valley Bank. We've got people worried about what the Fed's going to do. We got worried about tech. I want to know whether if I own Realty Income, will I still get my nice monthly dividend check? You bet. Uh, that's what we are made for. Uh, this company has been built on uh, sustaining these volatile times. So, yes, the monthly dividend check will continue to come. Well, OK, so and that's because you have a 99 percent occupancy. Is that because you're very careful to not be reliant on one particular area? Why are you so confident versus so much worry in the stock market? It's a combination of all those things. Uh, if you look at our portfolio and in terms of diversification, we are geographically very diversified. Uh, we are present here in the U.S., in the U.K., Spain and Italy. If you look at the real estate asset types, uh, we are across retail and industrial. Uh, we are exposed to 84 different industries. We have 1,250 different clients. So certainly that diversification, the fact that our balance sheet is an A minus A3 rated balance sheet, our access to capital, our continued on a relative basis cost of capital to allow us to execute our business model, 99% uh, occupancy, as you said, Jim, all of those uh, go towards pointing to a very resilient business model. There are a lot of people who would say, wait a second, I don't want to be in uh, a realty income during a period where short-term yields uh, are rising. That, uh, that is a concern uh, that most businesses are facing today. Uh, thankfully, you know, our leases tend to be 10, 15, 20 years in length. Uh, if you look at some of the recently announced transactions, uh, there's a predictability to our cash flow that um, is certainly impacted uh, with the, you know, in terms of where the short term rate is. 
but um, you know, it doesn't have a fundamental disruption to the overall operating business model that we have. So we will continue to deliver and we've come out with our earnings guidance um, that, that suggests as much. All right, Sumit, so you do some pretty interesting comments. There's something you did, Sumit, that I just think is fantastic, which is you did a deal with Wynn. I want people to describe, you describe it to people because I never heard anything like it. I didn't think you could do it, and it's a big winner. Uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people were surprised, just like yourself, Jim. Um, that was our first transaction that we did in the gaming industry. Uh, it's, a, it's an industry that we've been following closely, and uh, just like we've done in other areas of our business, we want to partner with the best-in-kind operators, and Win is certainly that in the gaming side. And when we started to have conversations with them about, you know, possibly uh, creating a relationship, uh, they, they talked about this asset that we ended up closing on, which was the Encore Boston Harbor asset, a $1.7 billion transaction, 30-year lease, and uh, it's, it's formulating a relationship, one of the best operators in the space. And so uh, we know that there are incumbents in the space, very good incumbents in the space, uh, who are much more focused in this, in this vertical. But then, um, you know, being a $61 billion company, uh, we, we, we believe we can play in any uh, area that we feel like uh, produces the right risk-adjusted returns for us. All right, so, Sumit, you're, you're really the grill in the category. You're the big guy. And you, you set a lot of tones, monthly income, you raise, you've been raising uh, your uh, distribution every three months. I need to know what your view is about an area that you don't do. Commercial real estate. Commercial office real estate, everyone's terrorized by it because of work from home, because of the older buildings. Do you think that that really is a, um, something that's cascading? Or is that something that operators that you know for a long time will figure out what to do? Yeah, it's, uh, look, we did have exposure to single tenant uh, office and uh, we had made a strategic decision to get out of that business a few years ago. We spun that business out. And, um, you know, it is a business that is, is going through hard times. But there are very smart people who are looking at that particular sector. We have some in the REIT space that are focused on, on office. And there are alternatives that are being explored. Uh, conversion to life sciences is one that comes to mind. Uh, and where it makes sense, you know, conversion to, to multifamily. Um, and not always will it lend itself to that. But, you know, I don't know if the story on, uh, on how people are going to work in the future has been fully played out yet. So. Uh, I, I think uh, it's too early to say it's the demise of, of central business district office buildings. Um, I, I do think that there's going to be a place in the future for that particular uh, asset type, and smart people are working on it. All right, one last question is really important to me. You deal with a lot of these retailers, including the big drugstore chains. Is there any end to the stealing that is happening within these companies? Now, look, I, th I think they're on to something. You know, if you look at what CVS and Walgreens have done recently, CVS just uh, announced the Oak Street Health deal. This is a focus of ours as well. We've been following them. They've been clients of ours for a very long time. This whole concept of consumer-centric medical is one that fascinates me. Um, it is trying to answer a question that, that, that we're all struggling with. You know, how, do, how is it possible that the per capita cost of healthcare is one of the highest in the OECD uh, countries, yet the quality of service that we provide is, is you know, below average. And so I do think that this advent towards 
delivering healthcare closer to the consumer base, which is what the CVSs and the Walgreens are exploring, will be part of the solution of, of reducing costs. And we on the real estate side would like to, to participate in that. Yeah, I think it's going to make those companies into different companies, better companies, not as beholden upon the consumer buying or selling a razor blade. That's what's needed. Sumit Roy is the CEO of Really Income. Monthly dividend income, long my favorite because of that. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Thanks, sir. Thank you very much. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls, and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Time for the light round. Let's start with Stackwell in Washington. Stackwell. But, 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 booyah, Jim. Hey, man. Oh, I like I that. I let you know, man. First, like- hey, first, first time, long time, man. Thank you, Jim. Hey, uh, hey, Love hey, first time, long time. Cash, you took a lot of cash from the block market to the stock market, man. Showing how to hustle in a better way, man. I got to thank you, Jim. Hey, I man. like that. Hey, you got it. <laughs> Hey, because of, because of you, man, I, I'm, beco- I, I'm becoming an investment advisor representative, man, at a local firm out here, man. And, uh, and I'm taking one of my first checks and becoming uh, an investment club member. So I'm letting you know that yes. right now. Next couple of weeks, you got my word on that. Hey. I want more in. Give me more. What's in the end of the stock? Hey, so, so, yeah, so let's get to the ticker symbol, man. You, you like companies that make stuff and do. Oh, yeah. Shout out to my guys on lock, man. Still the mob, man. But, yeah, but look, like I said, uh, so you like companies that make stuff and do things. With, with this yeah. company, they've been having a little bit of little tech trouble. So I'm wondering if it was a sugar rush for them making a good earnings, or are they pulling back and it's a good time to get in for the ticker symbol AI? No, that's sugar rush, my friend. It's really it's like cotton candy. We're going to have to stick. Come on, let's go try and true. You're a member of the club. Pick some of my stocks. Those are the ones that are going to do it. Let's go to Nick in New York. Nick. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Long-time Nick. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Long time for a lot of okay. chatter about Stellantis, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. I on actually this stock. like that stock. It's got a very good yield. It makes a lot of money. It's you know, it's cheap Chrysler. I love cheap. I even know. I think my executive producer has a cheap for heaven's sake, or or did. Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, that's a Wrangler. Yes, that's them. Steve and Pennsylvania. Steve. Steve. Hello, hey, Jim. Steve. Yeah, Steve. Steve. Steve from Pennsylvania uh, came across the company. I'd like your opinion. Uh, Gaitner uh, looks like a nascent uh, censure, and I thought it might be faster growing. What do you think? What was the stock? I'm sorry. Gaitner symbol is IT. Oh, Gardner, Gardner. Yeah, you know, if it went for, for Silicon Valley Bank, I'd say buyer. We got to see how everything shakes out. They won't have exposure, but they are involved in that area, and I think people could bring the stock down because of that. Let's go to John in Rhode Island. John. Booyah, Jim. I got a question about streaming services and where television manufacturers like Vizio, VZIO. Oh, play. I don't like any TV manufacturer. I'm going to take a big pass. If you want to buy TV, uh, just go buy TV. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank signals the need for change in Fed behavior. How should Jay Powell pivot? 
Find out next. For months, Fed Chief Jay Powell kept telling us that he needed to be a, a little circumspect about hitting the brakes in the economy. They couldn't just take up rates willy-nilly forever because you never know who's going to get hurt when you tighten too aggressively. Well, today we've got a perfect example of how hard this stuff is to see coming. When Silicon Valley Bank just collapsed practically out of nowhere, a textbook victim of the Fed's repeated rate hugs. While the bank was sitting on billions of dollars in losses of its bank portfolio of government bonds, we know if you hold those to maturity, you do get your money back. So I could argue that there was no way of knowing that this bank was going to fail, let alone the consequences of that failure. Of course, we might have been able to predict the outcome here if, if, if SVB Financial's executives had been just a little more forthright about the damage the Fed's tightening was doing to both sides of the portfolio. But they weren't. For 40 years, SVB specialized in being the bank to venture capitalists, to startups, to innovators, founders, mostly in the heart of the tech world. Oh, they were great at it, too. Much of the time, Silicon Valley's success was their success. If you had a stock in a startup before it became public, SVB was astute, very astute, about how to value that stock. And they'd often lend you money against it, even though it wasn't public. They'd be confident that you'd be able to pay them back after the inevitable IPO. It was a fabulous tease. It was inevitable, wasn't it? What we didn't know, though, was that SVB was a little too aggressive with its money lending, given that the IPO window has been closed shut for over a year now with no signs of reopening. And it was a little aggressive with what it did with these investors' deposits, buying lots of treasuries and government mortgages that would get hurt badly once the Fed started raising rates aggressively to beat runaway inflation. Now, I, I could say, I could have said they're reckless. I'm not going to. But their model had worked for decades through thick and thin. This time just happened to be different. The Fed's trying to stop inflation right now, the worst inflations in Silicon Valley. We had a ton of newly created tech with inflated valuations because the stock market was way too hot, burning up on cheap money that the Fed provided to get us through COVID. And a lot of it was in tech. J-Pal had to find a way to choke off that supply, and he did it by raising interest rates. If the Fed had gone more slowly, I have no doubt this bank failure could have been avoided. But given the pace of inflation, going slowly would have been hard to justify. Nevertheless, the speed of the rate hikes took everybody by surprise, including this bank, which had been expanding like crazy. In some ways, it really is SVB's fault. What the heck were they doing buying longer-term debt when the Fed kept saying over and over again that it was going to be tighter, longer, for, uh, well, let's just say much higher than where these guys bought the bonds? Management must have figured that they didn't have to worry. They could all wait things out, right? But SVB couldn't afford to wait things out because it became hopelessly underwater when, when the safest of paper, government paper, lost a huge amount of its value because of the tightenings. That's what happens if you buy notes assuming the Fed's done raising rates when they definitely weren't done. They probably thought IPOs would come back any minute, too. Mistaken judgment. But because of the Fed's aggressive rate hikes, there was much less interest in IPOs, so we got almost no deal flow. And that also hurt SVB in another way. Their pre-IPO commercial banking customers were burning through cash with no ability to raise more. And that cash they were burning through used to be SVB deposits. And so it became a slow-motion bank run until this week when it became visible. When it became an outright run that couldn't be stopped in time to save the bank. Too many customers needing money because their companies might not make it. Too few assets to draw from because the bank had a portfolio that was underwater, even if it only wouldn't have been 
except the ultimate measure came too early for the bonds to mature. Now, I don't know if other banks had the same mismatch. Probably some do. But as I said at the top of the show, the Fed would have to be nuts to maintain its aggressive course because they'd be ignoring their own admonishment not to create hidden problems by going too fast. Until today, the Fed's rate hikes, frankly, didn't seem to be hurting anybody, at least not too badly. Today, we found out that they might be hurting everything. And another quick 50 basis points could crush a whole host of banks whose stocks were down badly today. The rapid tightenings were prudent for a long time, given the circumstances. But now the circumstances have changed, and it's no longer prudent. Mr. Powell, I've been behind you 100%, whole way. Now it's time to slow down, see what happens. You were losing your war against inflation until today. Now, with a weaker employment number and a surprisingly big bank failure, you're winning. Take a bow and wait before hitting the brakes again, lest there be more Silicon Valley banks that were right under your noses than we would have known. We just didn't know. We sure know now. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you Monday. Last call starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.